In May of 2015, a man by the name of Keith Washington was released from prison as a level three sex offender. Months later, Amber Mansfield reported that Washington beat, choked, and raped her. After hearing nothing from police and fearing for her life, she dropped the case. Washington, the suspect, was never questioned. That December, he turned up, charged with assaulting two women in Uptown on the same night, leaving them unconscious. So begins the latest in a series called Denied Justice over at the Star Tribune. This one entitled How Repeat Rapists Slip by Police and the Details are as shocking as their original expose released over the weekend. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. Appreciate you joining us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up there for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. We got a lot of stuff on the topic or on the docket, I should say, for a Thursday evening. But we're going to start with this, this latest in uh, the series over at the Star Tribune detailing just the what what I regard to be the atrocious state of rape investigation by law enforcement in the state of Minnesota. They continue with the story of Amber Mansfield, bruised and terrified she sat in a hospital room and described her assault to two Minneapolis police officers. The man she was seeing, Washington, had flown into a rage, choked her, beaten her, and threatened to kill her. Then he raped her. Mansfield gave the police his address and his name, Keith Eugene Washington. A simple background check would have shown that Washington was a convicted rapist with a long criminal record, and it would have shown that the state had designated him a dangerous sex offender. Police checked none of that, according to the case file. Mansfield's case went nowhere. Five months later, Washington was charged with attacking two other women in Minneapolis just hours apart. Both had been choked until they blacked out and were left lying on the ground, partly undressed. Only then did Minneapolis police check his background and realize they needed to hear Mansfield's account. Today, three years later, the officer who oversaw the sex crimes unit acknowledges that Mansfield's case was mishandled. It was hardly the first time that happened in Minnesota. Public records reviewed by the Star Tribune from 2015 and 2016 showed dozens of rape cases in which police failed to investigate suspects, even though they had been accused of, charged with, or convicted of sexual assault in previous incidents, sometimes more than once. On the line to chat with us about it is State Representative Nick Zerwas. Uh, Nick, it's been a while since we had you on the program, and you know, typically I like to to have you on with with lighter topics than this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I very much appreciate you being willing to, to join us, and you were quoted in one of the follow-up pieces that the Star Tribune did uh, to their original expose over the weekend, and you had stated that uh, you had were prompted by their investigative work to engage in some research on potential legislative solutions. Give us, a, first of all, just your, your overall reaction to this and, and also yeah. where you're at with that research. Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things, Walter, and thanks for having me on. I mean, these accounts um, are are horrific, and the idea that um, in in the state of 
unbelievable vulnerability uh, a victim of a sexual assault will reach out for help, um, tell the details of that type of brutal sexual assault and have law enforcement uh, not move forward mm. uh, to do the very basics in an investigation, i.e. talk to the suspect, make right. contact with the individual, do a basic background check. That's, that's just horrendous. It's horrifying. And um, after meeting a couple weeks ago uh, with a few of the reporters working on this, uh, story with the Star Tribune after they reached out to me. Um, I'm afraid to tell you and your listeners um, that this is likely um, just a few of the stories that will likely in the next several weeks come out mm-hmm. that detail um, the, the, the very troubling uh, circumstances right. um, in which sexual assaults are investigated or in some cases apparently not investigated in the state of Minnesota. So, you know, given the fact that you know from from my position as a commentator, there's there's not a lot at stake for me to take have a hot take on the news of the day. But in your position as somebody who's tasked with the responsibility of developing public policy, you have to take a more deliberate approach. I know it's only been a few days since this story broke. It sounds like you had some inkling that it was coming. Are there any, or, or do you even want to tip your hand yet in terms of you know, potential legislative avenues that could be pursued to try to address this? Well, yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, um, looking at whether or not there is um, a standard policy or procedure um, developed by the Minnesota Post Board. The Post Board um, accredits and trains police officers statewide. If there needs to be something standardized by the Post Board and available um, for all departments, um, that being said, some of the most egregious uh, statistics and complaints are coming out of uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul Police Departments, um, which obviously have very large um, uh, um, units uh, mm-hmm. dealing with major crimes and, and sexual assaults and, and violent crimes. And so you would assume that large departments like that would would have that. Um, and instead of digging into this a little bit, one of the things that surprised me is that in a city the size of Minneapolis, to learn that there is not a detective on duty or available 24 hours a day. And so that if if you call 911, you show up at a hospital, you've been sexually assaulted um, at the University of Minnesota campus or in, in Minneapolis, and you call 911, um, there is not a detective on duty overnight. That's stunning um, to me. In all of Minneapolis, which which is not for sex crimes, and that and that blew my mind. And my in my five years with the Anoka County Sheriff's Office, um, uh, working in their crime lab mm-hmm. uh, as a as a civilian uh, crime scene analyst, um, Anoka County Sheriff's Office has had for decades 
and continues to have uh, 24-7, 365 coverage, detectives countywide to investigate sexual assault uh, uh, calls and complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I just assumed <laughs> that in the state's largest cities right. that that would also be in place. Right. And so that's something that stunned me. Um, and so we have to look at um, priorities within a city, within a city budget, mm-hmm. and and things that uh, the city council and mayor and police chief find money for, right. and things that they quite frankly don't. Right. And so there's questions to be asked there. There's questions on standardizing procedure. And there's clearly questions around training and the amount of training that's available for um, these very technical and very, very challenging cases to prove. Um, When these cases come down to not whether or not physical contact occurred, Mm -hmm. or whether there was consent, um, or whether the victim was in any condition to give consent, Mm -hmm. um, these cases become some of the most difficult to prove in the entire criminal justice system. And so clearly, when we look at cases that county attorneys are hesitant to bring forward with charges, and cases that detectives um, aren't being thorough in putting those cases together, clearly there's an opportunity here um, to improve training when it comes to both uh, law enforcement agencies and prosecutors in dealing with these types of cases. Well, and I think that, you know, because when I first started reading the article, you know, when a, when a headline hits you, you, you bring yeah. certain assumptions to your reading of the article and and then you you actually read it and then you reevaluate those assumptions and the assumptions that i brought to it was that oh here we go this is going to be an attack on the police for not being able to secure a conviction for every single person who lodges a complaint and in point of fact i think there's a distinction to be made and a very reasonable distinction to be made between the expectation that every case is going to be solved versus every case is going to be diligently investigated and very clearly from the cases that have been presented and the Star Tribune, the situation here is that the cases are not being diligently investigated. That's that's the real challenge, is and, and you know quite frankly and, and to be completely honest, um, it is really really challenging to investigate these types of cases um, where um, sometimes victim and witness statements might not be very good. Uh, sometimes the circumstances surrounding the the interaction, especially if it's um, a social setting, a party uh, that goes wrong or a, a first date or second date that uh, one person um, at the end of the day is not, uh, you know, says they were not uh, compliant in, in, in the sexual activity that occurred. Um, these cases become unbelievably complex, unbelievably challenging uh, to piece together and prosecute and prove uh, we're talking about proving cases beyond a reasonable doubt. But the point that you highlighted, Walter, is so important. It'd be one thing if county attorneys were bringing these cases and juries were acquitting people left and right. And there have been some acquittals that leave me some legislative changes. But by far and more common is um, the very basic investigative information not being gathered up front, the very basic evidence 
not being gathered up front, and that is information and evidence that you can't a week, two weeks, a month, six months later go back and ascertain. The last question I have for you, State Representative Nick Zerwas on the line with us tonight on closing argument, uh, is just it, related to the question of resources, because it seems like one of the knee-jerk responses from uh, many law enforcement agencies and uh, spokespeople, which is to be expected as, well, we don't have the resources. We don't have the what we need in order to investigate these these reports. And I suspect that there's a kernel of truth to that, but I also suspect that, as you kind of intimated a little bit earlier, that there's an issue of priority taking place, not just in terms of municipal budgets, but also in terms of where departments are choosing to to focus their resources. As somebody who has a background as a civilian uh, forensics uh, investigator, uh, what's your insight into that, if any? You know, the challenge is, Walter, is the agency that I, uh, I worked for, um, from the early 80s on, um, kind of prided themselves on being one of the best trained um, and best resource, resourced public law enforcement agencies in Minnesota for investigating uh, sex crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a priority of the leadership uh, from sheriffs going back, uh, you know, a generation or two generations ago that created this idea that all felony level sex crimes anywhere and Anoka County would be handled uh, by the sheriff's office. There would be a specialized group of detectives that work on violent crimes and sex crimes countywide. And then they made sure that group of uh, detectives were resourced appropriately, trained appropriately, and then staffed, uh, staffed uh, 24-7, 365 uh, with an overnight uh, on-call where when you were on-call, you expected that you would be you would be coming in and you'd be going to Unity Hospital in Friendly and you'd be going to Mercy Hospital in Coon Rapids and uh, you'd be meeting with a sexual assault nurse and, and a sexual assault victim uh, to recover evidence and, and go over those statements. That was the, the ethos and culture of the department and it was staffed and trained appropriately to do that. Clearly, we're not seeing... Um, in some of the departments that have been highlighted, we're not seeing that same priority and that same culture. And quite frankly, that's a leadership move and a leadership decision. Now, both both Minneapolis and St. Paul have fairly new uh, command staff uh, with the changeover of police chiefs. And so this seems like it's a systemic, historic problem. Right. So I'm not here to badmouth uh, those individuals, but if they don't look at this and say they got a lot of work to do, right. um, then we got a real problem. If, if they're in a position where they say, well, this is kind of just the normal operations and this is the status quo is okay, well, then we got a real problem. State Representative Nick Zerwas on the line with us tonight. Appreciate you tuning in, and we'll catch you tomorrow morning on Justice and Drew on the Roundtable. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Walter. Yep. Always good to have you. 651-989-5855, the number to get your live and local reaction. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. We are live and local. 
Let's talk to David in Woodbury. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, I've been listening over the last two months about Trump and people complaining about tariffs and his negotiations and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he's, he's basically coming on and saying, you know, if you guys are going to play fair with us, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this and this and this and this. And everybody's going, oh, that's crazy. You can't do that. It's like, I, I, I swear to God, I don't know if these people have never negotiated anything in their lives. You come from a strong position, and you get people to negotiate with you to get what you want. You Then you give a little bit, and you get, he did that at NATO. He did it with, it with the EU just the last couple of days ago. And it's going to happen with China, you know, with all China, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I just don't get it. I mean... Are people really that ignorant? Well, I think understand how to negotiate or what? I think there's a distinction to be made between the art of negotiation or the art of the deal to keep it apropos to President Donald Trump and the wisdom of a particular course and policy. And you know, my issue with Donald Trump, look, I'll I'll hand it to you. There are a lot of folks who I respect online who were doing a victory lap over this deal. Uh, as it's being represented between the European Union uh, Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, I believe it's pronounced, and Trump uh, as it relates to tariffs. And and, to your point, the idea that putting that pressure on the European Union by threatening the tariffs brings them to the table in order to negotiate things. My my underlying issue is that this is a, a... problem that we do not need to solve the idea that we need to take drastic measures in order to protect ourselves from tariffs and for imposed by foreign countries indicates a fundamental misunderstanding of what tariffs are how they work and what their economic effect is the the tariffs that are placed on american goods exported overseas by other countries hurts the consumers in those countries it hurts production in those countries they're shooting themselves in the foot so the idea that we have to come in with a strong negotiating position in order to convince them to stop shooting themselves in the foot economically strikes me as fundamentally flawed as a premise but i'll certainly grant you your point on the art of negotiation and that concede the point that donald trump is good at it there's no question well if the net result is a dropping of tariffs on both sides then based on what you're saying, though, those countries that have those tariffs dropped um, on U.S. goods will actually benefit from that, won't they? Well, sure, they will, but then the question becomes... Is it does it make sense for us to point a gun at our own head in an effort to convince them to stop pointing one at theirs? And I, I don't see the rational logic in that. Well, the point is that it's a negotiating technique... Right, I know, I, I understand, but so so was it. It was a negotiating technique when Sheriff Bart pulled out his gun and pointed at his own head and threatened to shoot himself in blazing saddles. But it wasn't particularly serious. That's why we all laughed at it. You know what I'm saying? Like the 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 point that I'm getting at is that the 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 technique is sound, and if the technique was employed towards a policy goal that made rational sense, I'd be all for it. My problem is that I disagree fundamentally with the policy goal, and that's the source of my criticism. But your point regarding the effectiveness of negotiation stands on its own merits. Well, if the policy goal is to get people 
to stop putting tariffs on our goods and we'll stop putting them on theirs, then I would say that it is an effective technique. All right. We all we'll agree to disagree. Appreciate you calling in the program, David. Let's uh, squeeze in real quick Al from Zimmerman. Welcome to the program. Al, are you with us? All right, Al, I'm going to put you on hold. We'll try you. Oh, well, he lost him. Maybe he can call back. We'll get to Barry in St. Paul when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Got some late-breaking news this evening we'll get into here shortly, but first we're going to take a call from Barry in St. Paul. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brett Olin takes those calls and produces the show. Barry, how are you doing tonight? Not terrible of yourself. Good. So, so here's my question. Is, is, is this mostly centered around Ramsey and Hennepin County? The problems that we're having is—is is that what their 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 anecdote, anecdotal evidence has been showing, or is it? I would truly I, say why. I would not be comfortable characterizing it as limited to Ramsey and Hennepin County. I I know from the most recent uh, article they published today, they share stories from from Duluth and other parts of the state, and the the general sense that I got is that this is a statewide issue. Okay, and well. So here's my question, right? So, well, my idea, I guess, is, is is Black Lives Matter the reason why they're complaining about this stuff? Is, is this is this a symptom of what they've been complaining about? And then, like, the push for for the U of M campus, you know, like when the Gophers players got wrapped up in that whole scandal, is that a byproduct of all this happening, and then the push for the Obama administration. Is this happening in other states, the push for the Obama administration to have these universities to be able to do, be able to expel people even though there's not convictions or anything? Well, I'm, not, is, I'm, not, sure, I'm not sure I'm following the, the red well, yarn between all these dots you're connecting. Okay, so here's my question. So now we're going into an election for the governorship, right? Right. And we have an opportunity to, to control all of Minnesota state governance, right? Right. So then, so here's my question is, is this, that if we actually put forth conservative ideas and, and make them happen and make things actually change inside of districts that are Democrat, uh-huh. right? How can we not? How can that not help us and help them and solve the problem all at the same time? <laughs> like, like you know how you were asking Nick Zerloff what his ideas are, right? right? right, right. What are yeah. we going to do? And it seems like he was talking about well, we should institute these these policies, right? Uh-huh. Well, how is that really a conservative idea? I, I know there should be policies, but then what? Why aren't we taking it a step further and saying, well, if you aren't following these policies, then we're going to take away state. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. It's it's all it's you, you took us on a long way around to to that particular point. But I understand what you're saying, that, that there ought to be some sort of consequences to to failing to do things well, the right way. Conservative pushes for consequences, not 
not democratic solutions like we've been getting from yeah. Black Lives Matter and like we've been getting from the Obama administration with the idea that we should be able to hold these right. people accountable I, on college campuses. Yeah, I, I hear you. I appreciate the call, Barry. You know, I, I to be honest with you, I find myself stuck between my desire to see the problem solved and a lot of red flags that pop up from my libertarian sensibilities when, you know, any time that the state says, well, we're going to figure out a way to, in a one-size-fits-all fashion, solve a problem in municipalities, solve the way that law is enforced at the local level, that inherently raises a red flag to me of, uh uh-oh, you know, like... are you actually going to get after the problem or are you going to just cause more problems? Is it going to become a -a whack-a-mole effort in terms of policy? And uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I need to spend more time reflecting upon what the solution ought to be. Frankly, that's why I was asking Nick Zerwas, because I know he's put some thought into it. Well, that's why I was saying if we put up conservative ideas, so like Nick Zerwas says, we should have have, uh, guidelines of how to investigate these things, right? So the guidelines should be clear, they should be defined, you know, they should give leeway, you know. It should be something that should be able to be easily done, right? Right. Okay? And then, and then you know, these minimum guidelines, if they're not met, just like the federal government does with with DUI stuff, you know, like yeah. 0.08 thing. Then it's attached to the funding, and the funding gets pulled. Yeah, I, I understand the premise. I would be certainly be willing to take a look at something like that and and evaluate it. I'm a, I would be very reticent, though, to just be like, yes, that's an awesome idea on its face without looking at the details. Appreciate your call, as always, Barry. Let's go to Drew Lee, your co-host on Justice and Drew in the Mornings. What are you doing up? Aren't you supposed to be sleeping right now? As a first-time caller, long-time listener, Walter. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. What's on your mind tonight? I'm just uh, just on my way home from an event, and uh, when it was uh, was enjoying your your conversation in the last segment uh, about tariffs, yeah. And, uh, wanted to get your thoughts on this because I think uh, you you, uh, you you have a very astute perspective on this issue. But one aspect of it that I don't feel like people talk about, and and maybe. Maybe I'm down the wrong track on it anyway. Is I feel like what what Trump is trying to do is open up these foreign markets uh, for more American goods to be sold. Mm-hmm. And if he can get the if he can get the European Union, if he can get China to lower their tariffs, mm-hmm. then that is a it's not only a net positive for those consumers in those countries, but it's a net positive for American businesses because they're going to be more competitive in those marketplaces. Yeah, it's always nice to have more places to sell your stuff, sure. And I, I just I, I don't think that's the that's one of the aspects of it that I don't feel like people are really paying attention well, to or thinking about long term. Everybody's so, focused on the short term pain. Right, right, right. <laughs> short term pain. Uh, but not necessarily the long-term gain. Well, the, the the question that I would have is, and look, you know, I don't claim to be, you know, some sort of expert in long-term economic dynamics, uh, but I'm doubtful, to put it lightly, that the long-term gain is going to be worth the pain, and I'm also doubtful that the pain is going to be short-term because, you know, we're we're seeing indications that, you know, the fact that the government is coming out and saying, yeah, we need to spend, you know, when we already have... Uh, major budget deficits, and you know, there's a story we're going to get into here later tonight if we have time, talking about how 
the the result of the tax cuts, one of the unfortunate results of the tax cuts without requisite uh, cuts in spending is that the deficit is is exploding and the yeah. the debt with it that in that context we're talking about spending even more money on subsidies for agriculture and other industries in order to buoy them as a result of the effects they're getting with this trade war that's going on that doesn't sound to me like a recipe for long-term economic health even if we end up opening up markets overseas eventually uh, I don't know that that's we're going to be able to recover quickly from that type of large scale interference in the economy. I, I I don't either, and that does that does concern me greatly. I I was not pleased uh, at all when when uh, when we did the story. We saw the news about the uh, you know the twelve billion dollar yeah. basically bailout that they're that they're right. the farmers. <laughs> you know that this is not the way to go. This is not certainly a conservative approach. Right, um, but. And to the I, caller's point, you know, I understand. I've, I've. It took me a long time, but I finally figured out that I'll, I'll, sometimes Trump proposes things not because he actually believes in them, but because he wants to provoke a conversation or provoke a negotiation towards something that he actually does support. I get that, and I've come to appreciate that about him. I still don't, wouldn't categorize it as necessarily being genius in this context to affect this particular end. No, I, and I agree with your your original point that you made with the caller earlier was it, that this might not be as big a problem as Trump is making it out to be that it requires this drastic of action. Right. right. My my only uh, you know choosing to be optimistic silver lining is when it's all said and done. You know when we when we get to the other side of sure. Sure. That we will be in a uh, in a much better place for American companies, hopefully. Well, and maybe we will. And I'll say the same thing I've said about Donald Trump from the beginning, which is when he leads us to the promised land, I I will concede the point and give him the praise that he's due. Absolutely appreciate having you on, Drew. All right, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Actually, we do have time to squeeze in another call here before we go to our last break of the hour. And Al's been trying to connect with us from Zimmerman for some time. Welcome to the program, Al. Hi. Oh, that was a good finish you had there. But uh, I was just going to talk about the U of M a bit. I, uh, oh, I don't know. The waste of money for an indoctrination center, it just kills me. I know people that have worked there for 20 years and never worked a day in their lives. Right, (laughs) electricians. I know uh, they're they're all union boys too. You know when you go to the U of M, boy. You mean in terms of like never-ending renovations? Oh, just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, there's there's no lack of work. You know, Uh, uh, you know, sixty dollar an hour uh, electrician. A big day would be changing three light bulbs. Sure, right. (laughs) And then hide in the catacombs underneath you and hang out and play cards and right, right, right. Uh, had one guy, uh, his boss finally caught him. I shouldn't say where it is, but he was at the bar. Oh, the, well, I mean, yeah. you know, the radius, we can already imagine some of the possibilities. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And he said, give me your keys. And he went to treatment, fully paid the whole time. And then he got a promotion. Well, that sounds like government so, to me. That sounds exactly no, like, like the no, way government that's operates. That's the way she rolls. But uh, you're... In uh, too small of a community here, you gotta get out. I've been listening to you, and uh, no, you gotta ex- expand your horizons. 
All right. I, That's well, all I want to say. I appreciate that. I appreciate you calling in the show. I'm not quite sure what Al means by that, that I need to expand my I horizons. Because, I mean, I drive all around the metro and live in a small community not far from Al. So I, I'm not quite sure what that was about. But, hey, I'm with him on the, the government waste that takes place. I don't know why the U of M in particular was on his mind. But uh, I could certainly tell you, you know, having a, a close relative who works at the hospital there at the U of M, they've been undergoing some renovations around their emergency room. And I don't understand what they're doing or why, because already there wasn't any place to park at that emergency room. Like to start with, they had no parking there and they've taken the spaces that were there and gotten rid of them, which is insane because it's an emergency room oh yeah i've parked there once that is awful it's horrible like i and they've got valets there and they've got the system for you know getting people in and getting their cars parked in the ramp and what have you but even so you would think that parking would be something of a priority at a hospital emergency room but i guess not when you're in the middle of uh leftyville Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Almost one hour down, this one went by quick, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Uh, We still have a lot of news that we haven't even scratched the surface of. One story that broke while we were on the air, or just before we came on the air, out of CNN, Michael Cohen, President Donald Trump's former personal attorney, claims that then-candidate Trump knew in advance about the June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower in which Russians... Dun, 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 were expected to offer his campaign dirt on Hillary Clinton. Sources with knowledge tell CNN. Once again with the anonymous sources. Cohen is willing to make that assertion to special counsel Robert Mueller, the sources said. Cohen's claim would contradict repeated denials by Trump, Donald Trump Jr., their lawyers, and other administration officials who have said that the president knew nothing about the Trump Tower meeting, until he was approached about it by the New York Times in July of 2017. Cohen alleges that he was present, along with several others, when Trump was informed of the Russians' offer by Trump Jr. By Cohen's account, Trump approved going ahead with the meeting with the Russians, according to sources. To be clear, these sources said Cohen does not have evidence, such as audio recordings, to corroborate his claim, but he is willing to attest to his account. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, it's obviously not a good headline for Trump, but also you better have something like it, at this point, Michael Cohen's word against all those other people, Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., the lawyers, the administration officials, it's going to make, it, it'll make traction with the people who already believe that Trump is a puppet of Putin but it's not going to convince the rest of us. As long as we're talking about Michael Cohen, there's analysis uh, over at Politico by a lawyer by the name of Gene Rossi who claims that the Cohen tape is trouble for Trump regardless of its content just by virtue of the fact that it exists. He writes, As a former federal prosecutor with close to three decades of experience, including 110 trials, 
I can safely write that words do profoundly matter in a criminal case, and tapes can be potentially explosive. The tone, the bravado, the pause, the context, the silence, the hidden meaning, the wink and a nod that tapes bring to light between alleged conspirators, defendants whose voices were on recordings in quite a few of my trials always had one thing in common, they hated tapes. I loved them. And notwithstanding uh, Eliza's feelings, he makes a pop culture reference earlier to the uh, uh, My Fair Lady, the words are usually priceless. The American people and the world have been introduced to the first of possibly many tapes of Michael Cohen and President Donald Trump. Stay tuned and get out the popcorn, no matter how much Lanny Davis and Rudy Giuliani, who are both exceptional lawyers under any standard, very publicly try to spin whether the tapes help or hurt their respective clients. There are several aspects of tapes that always weigh heavily in favor of a prosecutor. Before I get into those favorable aspects, let's summarize some of what has been reported in the media. We have an audio recording of a private conversation between Cohen and the president. The tape was made in September of 2016 in the heat of an intense campaign between Trump and his Democratic opponent, Hillary Clinton. On the relatively short tape, which probably will have to be further analyzed for who said exactly what and when, there is a discussion of a possible payment, cash or check, to, quote, David, unquote, who presumably is David Pecker of American Media Inc., which owns the National Enquirer. American Media Inc. reportedly paid $150,000 for the rights to former Playboy model Karen McDougal's story of her affair with the president in 2006 and 2007. In my opening or closing to the jury, I would refer to a piece of evidence such as this as the David tape. However, I must stress that the David tape alone is not enough by any means for criminal charges. As I taught to hundreds of young federal prosecutors, a trial is mainly a prosecutor's presentation of a final mosaic the theme and synopsis of the crime for the jury. A mosaic can be compromised of countless evidentiary tiles, and the David tape could be one of several explosively significant tiles in the mosaic if charges are ever brought. We shall see. Why could the David tape be important in this or any other matter? My first point, albeit subtle, cannot be overstated. Their voices are on a tape. Period. If there is a trial, a defendant has a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and not testify. A tape with the defendant's voice thereon is a beautiful tool, a legal way for the prosecutor to effectively call the defendant as a witness. In all my years as a prosecutor, I never once met a defense attorney who wanted the jury to hear their client's voice on a tape, even if the defendant is saying exculpatory things. The tape is an important window into the defendant's soul. The jury may hate the tone, the insincerity, the way words are spoken, and the cadence of the sentences. I sometimes embraced the playing of tapes that had self-serving statements because letting the jury hear the words coming out of the mouth of the defendant far outweighed the self-serving statements of the speaker. This from Gene Rossi, a prosecutor writing at Politico, and you can go check out the rest. Michael Cohen's tape is Trouble for Trump is the title. And basically, the, you know, the point that he's leaving us with here is that the content of the tape and whether or not the tape proves onto itself in prima facie fashion that Donald Trump, aha, Donald Trump is guilty of whatever campaign finance vi violation. That's not ultimately the importance of the tape. It's, it's not that it's a smoking gun. It's important in that it, pro it provides a set of persuasive tools 
to a potential prosecutor that did not exist before, and that can be utilized in order to paint what uh, Rossi refers to as this mosaic that could convince a jury to rule against Donald Trump or some of his associates going forward. So we'll see what comes out. You know, we got this headline that just broke tonight about Michael Cohen claiming that Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting. You know, that's another tile in this mosaic to extend the metaphor. And, you know, perhaps we'll see, undoubtedly, we'll see other recordings surface in the coming days and weeks and months. And we'll see what it all adds up to. Maybe nothing, but maybe not. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. that we've had in the lineup kind of all week long things that have been accumulating that I've never gotten to night after night and uh, seeing as how you know we're we're taking tomorrow night off I want to spend some time this hour to to go through some of these things that have fallen through the cracks over the past week because I've really wanted to talk about some of these stories because they're they're illustrations of cultural and political absurdity which is uh, one of the things we like to focus on here on the program. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Olman takes those calls and produces the show. We start in California. From the Sacramento Bee, a proposal introduced Tuesday to ban employee cafeterias in future San Francisco office buildings represents more than an effort to boost the city's. Now, I'm going to pause right there because right there in the sentence is where they tell you why they're doing this. Let's just back up and and once again present what it is we're talking about. A proposal to ban employee cafeterias. In future San Francisco office buildings. What? Now, when I first saw this headline, because the headline is, Eat Lunch with the Rest of Us, San Francisco Ways Ban on Employee Cafeterias, I I had to click on it. I had to. I thought, this is this is brilliant clickbait. Because I, as a rational, sane, normal human being, I can't conceive of a rationale for this policy. I can't imagine what the super uber woke philosophy is that points to banning employee cafeterias as a solution to some imagined social injustice. What is it that they're trying to affect here? Continuing at the uh, Sacramento Bee, it's more than an effort to boost the city's restaurant scene, backers say. So this is a subsidy. This is, this is, the, the, the restaurants aren't doing well. Because people are eating in their workplaces, so they're going to ban employee cafeterias in order to force people, in order to make people's lives literally worse, right? Like, because the reason you choose to eat your lunch in the employee cafeteria is because it's the highest value for the lowest cost. Say it with me, folks. Highest, highest value, value for lowest, lowest cost, cost, right? Like, that's, it's, it's, it's become a mantra here on the show. 
But it has to be a mantra because apparently the world has forgotten that that's what we ought to be aiming for, right? And and there's there's this total lack of understanding by at least one half of the population that it's a good thing when people save money. It's a good thing when people save time. It's a good thing when people don't have to expend more effort than necessary in order to obtain and keep a value, right? But not if you're not if you're in the municipal government. Uh, out there in San Francisco, because by God, we've got to do something in order to boost the restaurant scene. And the thing that strikes me about this is there's n- there's no question, no question whatsoever, that part of the reason, a significant portion of the reason why restaurants in San Francisco may be struggling is because of all of the government impositions upon them. The minimum wage. I'm sure they have, you know, just I, there's no way San Francisco is more lenient than Minneapolis, right? So I'm sure they <laughs> have, I'm sure they have mandated sick time. I'm sure they have all sorts of, you know, dictates as to, you know, how, how many, uh, hours you can have somebody on before you have to pay them. Like, pro- they probably have more strenuous overtime requirements than the federal government does and all sorts of things. And so all of that increases the cost of doing business as a restaurant in San Francisco, which in turn is reflected in the price that the restaurants have to present to their potential customers, which factors into the customer's decision to go to the restaurant, right? And and also in turn factors into the employer's decision to provide as a benefit, as part of their compensation package, an employee cafeteria. Well, and it's not, even if they ban the cafeteria, they can they turn it to a lunchroom? Just, hey, come sit down, there's long tables, but you have to bring your own lunch. Or people are just going to eat at their desk. Or people are going to find a park. But that might be a health violation because there's crap everywhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> no... No place is safe. No activity is safe. No part of your day is safe. No aspect of your your values or your desires or your productivity. That no no corner of your existence is out of bounds for the interference of the leftists at all levels of government. A city trying to ban employee cafeterias in office buildings. My God, you know what? San Francisco, you might as well, here's what you can do. This is an attractive alternative proposal. Just as a city, pass a resolution declaring victory in life because you've solved it. Like you've apparently, you have apparently solved all of the problems because this is what you've come to. Like on the list of priorities, you've reached the point where you're like, what should we do to boost restaurant um participation from customers. I know we should ban employee cafeterias. Wow. If every other problem in the world has been solved, that that's your priority, just declare victory on life and go home. And please stay there and please shut the door and please never come out again. From the Washington Post. The video traveled quickly after being shared Monday on Facebook, gathering more than 1.5 million views in less than a day. I'm willing to bet the listeners of this program have seen this video. I know I have. In it, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the congressional candidate from New York whose Democratic Socialist campaign has struck a lightning bolt into the world of Democratic politics, appeared to give bizarre answers in a a two-and-a-half-minute video that was staged as an interview with conservative commentator Ali Stuckey on the site CRTV. Ocasio-Cortez shook her head no when Stuckey asked if she had any knowledge about how the political system worked. (laughs) 
and seemed to imply that Venezuela was in the Middle East and was a model of socialism. But the video did not depict a real interview. Despite its caption, Ali Grills, Congressional Hopeful, and Progressive It Girl Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on her socialist agenda and knowledge of government, or lack thereof. Instead, it used heavily edited footage, edited footage from an interview Ocasio-Cortez did with PBS earlier this month, spliced to appear as answers to questions read by Stuckey. After an outcry, the Facebook page for Stuckey's show, which the social media giant has given an informal impromptu in the form of a blue verification checkmark. Oh, we got to get on our our uh, pushback. We got to get in blame to Facebook for having the audacity to let conservatives speak. That's got to be shoehorned into this Washington Post piece. Was updated to note that the video was satire and include a reference to the original PBS show. But the fact that the video traveled so widely, and for some, apparently believably, has served as another example of how misleading information continues to thrive in the fast-paced flow of information online, despite Facebook's promise to better weed it out. No, that's not what it demonstrates. What it demonstrates is that a lot of people are very deeply, profoundly stupid. Yup. That's what it demonstrates. I knew immediately before I even heard the audio that it was fake. Just like, of course it's why, fake. Why would Andrew, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ever agree to an interview with that CRTV gal? Right. Never, the, ever. The, the, CRTV, which I, my familiarity with it is limited, but I believe it's affiliated with Mark Levin. Uh, conservative Review, I think is what it stands for. Conservative Review Television. Maybe I'm getting my networks mixed up. But it's a conservative media platform. I mean, it's as likely, it, in fact, it's more likely that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would have a one-on-one -on -one interview with Sean Hannity as it is that she would sit down with this gal that nobody knows from CRTV, right? I mean, the, just on its face, the idea that this actually happened is absurd. But then, but then, when you actually watch the video, my God, is it, it's, it's so obviously edited and as satire for comedic effect. I mean, the, you can tell that Ellie is acting in response to these, the, and like the, the quality of the video is off when they, they don't pan, they just switch, right? They just switch angles, which is a giveaway. They're, they, they have artifacts of, you know, photoshopping, so to speak, where the, the two images have been spliced together. It's so obviously fake. And, I, look, I get it. Sometimes people don't always bring their full cognitive faculty to determining the veracity of something that's presented to them online. I get it. I'm as guilty of it as the next person. Looking at something for half a second, making a quick value judgment, and moving forward. But there's a difference between that. Like, the people who did that and were like, oh, that's weird that Ocasio-Cortez was on with that conservative alley girl. The people who did, who did that are not included in my condemnation here, right? The people who are included in my condemnation are those who sat and watched the video and got to the end of it and were like, oh, my God, I can't believe Ocasio-Cortez went on with that. Like, you, you, need, you need remedial, remedial education, and it might be too late for you. If you're an adult and you believed this, yeah. it might be too late for you. Well, like late night comedy shows have been doing this for years. I've seen it on every late night talk show from Colbert to Leno right. to Letterman. It's right. been on every show. Yeah. Now, the, I 
to, I will say this. I will say this. Should they have been more explicit in terms of declaring it as comedy, declaring it as satire? I think so, yes. I think that would have been a good idea. I think that it that the the presentation of it is intentionally misleading on its face. However, <laughs> that sometimes the setup to a punchline, that's what it's like. That's how it works, right? Like you set up the punchline by pretending to be serious. And then you hit them with the really obviously absurd punchline. Well, it's the whole thing that's going on right now with Sasha Baron Cohen's new show, too. Right. And the left is all over that. Oh, yeah. For good reason, I think. But, um, yeah, it's, it's the same thing, and people just don't get it. We've, we've let politics mask our sense of irony. Yeah, which, which takes us to a piece written here uh, over at a publication called The Outline by Aaliyah Letter. She t- puts out a plea to bring back irony. She writes, lately, I have been missing irony. I wanted to write an article in which I talked to a bunch of professors about if irony would ever come back, but none of them answered my emails. This, however, gave me confidence that irony is not dead and that I could write this article by myself with mostly my own thoughts. Thus, I will explain here why we need irony, but first I will briefly discuss some recent cultural trends generally and present a nascent cultural theory of my own. In the late 80s and 90s, as you may remember, irony was very big. Spy, the official magazine of the Gen X man who was slightly smarter and better dressed than men in the general population, published in 1989 an article on the offshoot of uh, Santiago Camp that dubbed the irony epidemic or a way for all kinds of taboo styles to sneak past the tastefulness authorities. Don't mind us, we're just kidding, and then once inside, turn serious. Irony then was a way to never grow up, a way to avoid taking anything seriously, but it was mainly about being cool. After 9-11, however, the aloofness of irony gave way to the performatism of what Wikipedia and numerous unpublished dissertations on David Foster Wallace call the new sincerity, which eventually made it acceptable for Arcade Fire to be a band and for adults to have Harry Potter-themed weddings. The the introduction of schema-breaking terrorism into our lives injected a hearty dose of either jingoism or anti-war pathos into whichever political philosophy one identified with. You were either with America or against it. In any case, the jaded cultural milieu that produced Seinfeld and The Simpsons no longer seems sufficient or appropriate to tackle the era's issues. And she goes on like this uh, at the, the outline, making the case that basically we've lost our sense of humor. Basically, nothing's funny anymore. It's all just offensive. And I think that's something that regardless of where you find yourself, you know, either on the political left or the political right, we properly ought to be able to acknowledge. We'll see when we chat with Nathan from Minneapolis when we return. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Talking about a video that went viral on social media. I saw it in my news feed. You might have saw it in yours. Between a conservative commentator by the name of Allie, works for an organization called CRTV, and, you know, ostensibly Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Now, you know, just on its face, the idea that these two sat down across from each other for a media interview is pretty absurd, but that's the way it was presented. And then you watch the video. And it uh, very clearly is an edited piece 
of satire. But a lot of people bought it for whatever reason. A lot of people thought it was serious, and the there are those who are quite upset and want to see something simply be done in response to this misinformation. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Let's chat with Nathan in Minneapolis. Welcome once again to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Um, I had uh, one point that I was going to ask. A couple days ago you were talking about uh, Facebook uh, not wanting to see Facebook regulated by Congress and Congress kind of bullying Zuckerberg into uh, making changes. In, in uh, my in my perception, there's an implicit threat. You know, when you bring somebody before Congress and start asking them questions, it's kind of like when the cops stop you on the street and start asking you questions. Is implicit in that is the very real possibility that at some point they're going to take out their gun and start telling you to do things. Yeah, I agree, and um, so. That combined with the fact that uh, Facebook's stocks fell pretty significantly, mm-hmm. um, it seems like to me what happened is a free market solution to the problem of misinformation. Um, so I'm not real. I'm just wondering uh, how you feel that it isn't, or why you're sort of feel critical of the reaction that Facebook had. I'm unclear as to the premise of your question because the, what. What I'm specifically criticizing in the last segment regarding this video with uh, Ali from CRTV and Ocasio-Cortez was the consumer reaction to the video and the this, the subsequent political uh, expression along the lines of something must be done in order to curtail this misinformation. This wasn't something that Facebook did. This was something me, that Ali did. I feel did. like Facebook, if Facebook was to respond to us as consumers... Mm-hmm. Um, and make a change, which it sounds like they did. That's sort of a market solution to me. What? How? I don't. What, what's the change that they made? The the change would be to update the the content restriction and and uh, I think the what I am concerned about is that people feel like labeling things satire tire becomes difficult when it feels like an act of limiting free speech. So I'm I'm not entirely sure I'm I'm following your language, but let me cut to the chase in terms of what my overriding concern is here. Like I I understand the desire, and it's a legitimate desire to see good information proliferated and to see bad information called out as such and exposed and uh, undermined in the discourse. That should happen. For me, though, the the question becomes. What's more dangerous, individuals believing the wrong thing or coming to the wrong conclusions, even in mass, is that better or worse than large institutions, whether they be giant corporations like Facebook or Twitter or the government, which in my mind is, is worse, deciding for the rest of us what is true and what is false? One of the things that I noticed that um, ha- has happened is that it's very difficult to create context on Facebook in the way that, um, like on the newspaper stand, as you're checking out at Target or CBS or whatever, there are things like fonts and the way pictures are framed and the way mm-hmm. magazine covers are uh, put together that kind of let people know the level of truth or reliability that one is working with. Um, like, 
there's certain fonts for tabloids and certain ways that they're put together that sort of give an indication. Right. Um, but this video was presented in the same way. On Facebook, there's not those same social cues because it all shows up in the same right. Font. But the, the 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 difference, of course, is that a newspaper or a magazine is a it's a published product that is conveying the reputation of the people who publish it, as opposed to Facebook, which is supposed to be, at least in theory, a platform for the free exchange of ideas. The qualitative judgment of whether those ideas are merited or not, whether they're serious or funny, you know, that's something that that we as the social masses engaging with each other have to determine on our own. The idea that there's there needs to be some sort of shortcut in place in order to to help people along Look, if that's something that you want to provide in terms of options for people to place on their own posts, great. But I, I don't see this overriding uh, need for there to be some sort of top-down institutional solution to misinformation. People need to develop discernment. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I think that um, uh, so a free market solution might be to have uh, an app come out from a company that sorts things or um, Facebook deciding could Facebook decide to do that on behalf of its customers? Yeah, but they would never give their data to a third party anymore. That that's that's uh, Brad Brad saying that Facebook wouldn't want to expose themselves to to partnering with somebody who they couldn't control in the market. But you know, so if they if they don't want to partner, um, then don't you think it's incumbent upon them? to begin to see uh, Facebook users as customers because we are customers providing them with well, our data. I think they will when they start to see significant competition. And right now, they don't. Right now, there, there is competition for Facebook, but I, I can name maybe one, and I think I'm wrong as to what it is. Like I, the, the name that came to mind was DuckDuckGo, and I just realized that's a search engine. So that's not even a, a social media network. So there, there isn't enough significant competition to Facebook to provoke them into being, being uh, regarding us less as the product, which is more of what we currently are. And regarding us as the consumer, perhaps the drop in stock prices will facilitate that along with, you know, we have a piece here that we haven't gotten to yet where they talk about a kind of market saturation that Facebook and other social media uh, networks are meeting where you, you've got something like two and a half billion people on the planet who are plugged into these platforms and there just isn't a lot more expansion possible on the globe for these platforms so they need to instead of looking to expand it's time to turn inward and improve quality and so maybe there, something will come out of that is there a libertarian um typical stance to how to respond to monopolization what the i, I don't think it the, the response is competition in this case, Facebook is doing things that people obviously don't like. And so the answer is for people to come along and say, hey, we'll provide you all the value that Facebook does along with what you're looking for that they're not providing you. And monopolies literally can't exist in a free market. In a truly free market, monopolies can never exist. Which I know is a point of contention uh, amongst the left and the right. I appreciate your call as always, Nathan. Yeah, all the best. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. The metaphor of the marketplace of ideas 
is quite apt because the the interaction, the way in which we discern the veracity of information in the marketplace of ideas is very similar to the way in which we discern the the value, the economic value of products and services in the economic market. It depends upon the look. You have to give people the ability to be wrong. That's how you arrive at the correct answer. That's but, how you arrive, arrive at the correct price. The left won't settle for being wrong. Well, and that's and that's the problem is that you can't avoid it. Like the idea, this is this is why, and and you know, I I hate to be derogatory. I hate to be to you know to be condescending. I know that's that I enjoy being there. I enjoy that space. I really like it. But I'm trying to be nice in making this point. There, there's a high degree of fantasy involved in the the ideal that's presented by the left side of the political and cultural spectrum when it comes to trying to solve these problems of whether you're talking about the veracity of information in the public discourse or you're talking about the 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 way economic value is produced and exchanged in the market. In either case, there's this fantastical premise that they're operating under that we can somehow get to a point where everything just turns up roses and everybody's right all the time. And that's that's never going to happen. There are always going to be people who are wrong. The question becomes, how do we ensure that when you're wrong, you're wrong for the least amount of time possible and the, you're presented with evidence to correct your course? Whether you're talking about you know a price signal or you're talking about a claim that's put out on social media, and the answer to that question is always, always, always liberty. Because in the context of liberty, people are free to bring their individual discernment to the question at issue. There, there's no way you know it's kind of if you think about it in terms of you know the way that computers work, computer processing works. As you multiply the the calculations that a processor can do it works faster and it brings you to the, the the end you're trying to achieve quicker the same is true of the human kind of collective consciousness of all of our minds working towards a particular end the more people are directing their judgment and their effort at trying to arrive at the solution to a problem the quicker you're going to arrive at it and the better your solution is going to be and this happens, it's, you know, it's, it's not always big issues. In fact, most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time in our day-to-day -day existence, the, 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 ish, the questions that we're presented with that we collectively come up with answers to are things like, what's a tomato worth? What's a gallon of gasoline? What does it take to produce a gallon of gasoline? And should we produce more or less? Should we consume more or less? These are questions that if you just presented them to one guy, you made one guy, just pick a guy's name out of the phone book and make him king of everything, king of the world, emperor of the universe. And you say, hey, Bob, your majesty, what's a tomato worth? That one dude, I don't care how smart he is. I don't care how he could be the smartest guy, have the biggest IQ ever in the history of humankind. Could be, could, could be the, the most traveled, the best educated, read a whole bunch of books right, travel in all the right circles, that one guy is not going to be able to give you the answer to that question because the answer to that question is bigger than him. It's bigger than his intellect. It's bigger than his experience. 
It's only through the interaction of limitless people who are engaged in the consumption of and production of tomatoes or whatever the the object in question, the widget in question is. It's only the interaction of all those forces that you're able to arrive at the correct answer to a question like that of what is a tomato worth. And to the extent that government gets involved in order to try to prevent monopolies from rising in the tomato production market or in order to make sure that the workers are paid fairly for the, the work that they do in order to, to produce that tomato and bring it to market or, or in order to protect uh, American companies from f- foreign uh, tariffs by imposing tariffs of our own or whatever the intervention is, all you're doing is shutting off calculations in that processor. You're shrinking the amount of capacity that the processor known as the market has in order to arrive at a correct answer to that solution. And it throws white noise into the signal that price is. And that's true economically, and it's also true in our discourse. It's true in our pursuit of truth as we engage with each other in this thing called the public discourse. The the more that institutions like, whether it's a private institution like Facebook and Twitter or the government through the force of law, the more the institution or universities or colleges, the more the institutions clamp down on what it's okay to say and what's okay, and what you can't say and try to dictate the terms on which issues are explored and pursued, the narrower you make the scope of acceptable discourse, the more difficult it's going to be to arrive at solutions to any given problem. And that is a bad thing. I don't care what perspective you're coming from. Having fewer resources is always bad. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Let's go to Greg in Columbia Heights. Hi, Walter. Good evening. Hey, I've got I've got a piece for you. Um, I've used this many times uh, to show people, like you just described, how hard that 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 person made King wouldn't know the price of a tomato. Right. There's a great piece of writing, like I believe it's 1958 or 59 by Leonard Reed, and it's called. It was actually before iPad, i everything. It's called i pencil. It's only an eight page uh, reading, but it explains how nobody could make a pencil on their own. Right. It's a beautiful economic about capitalism and how beautifully laid out in capitalism how that pencil came to be and that it can't be done under any other economic uh, 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 form um, of governance or political philosophy. Correct. Yes, it could be done, but it would be brutally expensive. And that I pencil, it's um, actually, the, there's a website, uh, Freedom for Economic Education, yep. FEE.org. Mm-hmm. It's a great website. Yeah, we, we cite them uh, not frequently enough, but every once in a while. Appreciate the call, okay, Greg. Appreciate the input. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. You know, I told the story, uh, actually, it was earlier this week. I had a really bad Monday. <laughs> I had a really rough Monday, really rough start to the week this week. I During my day job, my work vehicle broke down, and I was stuck in the middle of town here. Uh, in the you know close to Minneapolis, and I live way out in the the western exurbs, you would call them. You know, it's right outside of what would traditionally be considered the metro area. And so I'm far from home. I got no way to get anywhere. My my vehicle's broken down in the mid, like at the start of the workday, so I haven't even made any money. It was just a really bad situation, but I was able to address it 
extraordinarily efficiently and quickly compared to how it would have gone even just 10 years ago because I've got this magic device in my pocket, a cell phone that instantly connects me with literally everything that human beings know from the beginning of time until now and can connect me to people who are providing products and services, can connect me to somebody who is willing to share a ride in their car for a reasonable price through a service like Uber or Lyft. And as a result, within a couple of hours, my vehicle was towed to a uh, service station that was willing to take care of it and did so quite promptly, by the way, for a reasonable cost. And I was able to get a ride home, and I was back with my family that afternoon, making the best of what had started off as a bad day. There... There are literally thousands of people, probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people that I owe some degree of thanks to because the actions that they took corporately in cooperation with one another in the context of the market produced the means by which I was able to have a much better day than I otherwise would have. And that is true of literally every day that you live on this earth. And when you think about it in those terms, it ought to produce this this odd feeling that's not too often evoked nowadays that used to be called gratitude. Gratitude and a positive, optimistic orientation towards the future. Because if things can get this good with the limited amount of liberty that we have now, just imagine what would be possible in the future if we really opened up that throttle. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Closing things out here on a Thursday evening. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to squeeze in a comment. At the tail end of our show, let's talk to regular caller Mike in Farmington. How are you doing tonight? Great. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. Uh, I was listening to your story, and, yeah, I mean, that's a great story, really, that, you know, you have access to all those services and it made me think of something. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called Tucker with Jeff Bridges. It's about a real person who designed a vehicle. I'm familiar with this with the film. I don't know that I've seen it though. Yes, and he was he was thwarted by the other manufacturers because he had all these ideas and they, and they didn't really want to have him release all these ideas because I thought it was competition, but I just, I was thinking about technology, but also how this, there's this cabal, if you will, of people that seem to want us to depend on them. Mm. And and the threat is, if we realize that, hey, we really don't need all these people to do these things, meaning the government... Right. If we open our eyes and access uh, knowledge and expand our liberty, mm-hmm. just like you said in closing your, your uh, segment, we can expand liberty. Life, you know, life will improve greatly for many people. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the listen. I understand. You know, not not every not every bad idea is motivated by malicious intent. 
And a lot of times, you know, people come to their bad policy ideas or their bad policy inclinations out of a, a legitimate sense of of self-interest and kind of panic as to how they're going to adjust to a given development. So, for instance, if somebody, you know, if you work in a widget factory and you've been working there for, you know, 10, 15 years and making a decent living at it, and all of a sudden a competitor comes out with a better way to make that widget, the the first thing that's going to pop in your head is, uh-oh, you know, I, I'm going to get squeezed out here. I might end up losing my job. You know, the business might end up getting scaled back. And so what can be done in order to prevent that from happening? And the correct answer in a, in a, in a market setting, in a free setting, as a condition of liberty, is, well, we need to come up with, we, we need to compete. We need to, to do our job better and, and provide a, a greater value at a lower cost to, to customers so that we stay in this game. But people don't want to do that. You know, they want to be protected. And, you know, that's just one example that, that we see. But there's, there's all sorts of examples you know, and all sorts of, of political constituencies that have been developed around the idea that it's somehow unfair if somebody comes up with a better way of doing something because that means I'm not going to be able to continue making money doing it a worse way. Which, when you think about it in those terms, it's pretty absurd that we even have to have a conversation past that realization. If you're arguing that we need to keep, we need to maintain a status quo that works worse than the new thing that somebody came up with, and I'm looking at you, taxis versus Uber, that's a pretty insane argument. Well, that's the the base impulse or reaction is, I guess, the threat, and then fear takes hold, and they they don't really think forward. Yeah, appreciate the calls, always, Mike, and uh, we'll we'll hear from you. Next week, I'm sure. I want to touch upon this. You know, we've only got a couple of minutes to get into it, but that's all we'll really need. You know, we, this has been in the stack for a while, and I haven't quite got to it. This babies concept, it's it, even saying it, it's hard to convey what it is. Babies. It's not a comic book superhero. No, it's not. And it's, and it's not some, you know, mutated form of rabies either. From NBC News, three-year-old twins Zyler and Caden Sharp scurried around the boys' and girls' clothing racks in a narrow consignment store filled with toys. Zyler, wearing rainbow leggings, scrutinized a pair of hot pink and purple sneakers. Caden, in a T-Rex shirt, fixated on a musical cube that flashed colorful lights. At a glance, the only discernible difference between these fraternal twins is their hair. Zyler's is brown and Caden's is blonde. Is Zyler a boy or a girl? How about Caden? That's a question their parents, Nate and Julia Sharp, say only the twins can decide. The Cambridge, Massachusetts couple represent a small group of parents raising babies, children being brought up without gender designation from birth. A Facebook community for these parents currently claims about 220 members across the U.S. I highly recommend you go check out Matt Walsh's podcast on this topic. He recently did 20, millions, 20 minutes of brilliance in response to this phenomenon of parents trying to raise their children without a gender identity. Now, he, he comes to the conclusion that this is child abuse. And I take his point, right? Like the, 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 the premise that he casts out there is that you, this is an attack upon a child's fundamental sense of identity. And I would take it further to say, and I'm sure Walsh would agree, it's an attack upon their perception of reality. Like your one job, the one job you have as a parent, in a nutshell, is to develop your child's capacity to accurately perceive reality and then 
negotiate it successfully, right? Like that's the whole point. That's what raising a kid means, getting them to the point where they're completely incapable of making decisions for themselves and acting appropriately and productively to the point where they can discern with wisdom what's true about the world around them and then act accordingly in pursuit of their rationally conceived values. That's your entire job as a parent. And when you start out from day one by intentionally ignoring the reality of gender and trying to bring your kids up, you know, it goes down here further in the article where these, these parents say that they're, they're intentionally keeping their children from anything that, that, exposes them to the the connotations of their uh, equipment, of their anatomy. So in other words, they don't know what the difference between a boy and a girl is down there. Good right? luck potty training. Which which is, like, look, if, if your means of raising your child and bringing your child up necessitates you to keep information from them, that tells you all you really need to know about the the veracity of it. But in spite of all that, in spite of the fact that I would agree with the characterization of this being abusive, I still would not advocate, as Walsh does, to making it illegal or taking some sort of legal action because we have to, parents are have to be able to make mistakes. We just talked about the importance of being able to make mistakes and being able to discern what's right over many people interacting. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.